Many people feel a deep connection to their work, seeing it not just as a way to make extra cash, but a calling or even part of their identity. And yet since the 1930s, courts have relegated claims involving the right to work free of irrational government restrictions to the lowest standard of scrutiny, the so-called rational basis test, which in practice is anything but rational. But it wasn't always that way. For a time, courts vigorously protected all aspects of our liberty, including economic freedom, and took seriously laws that restricted people's ability to work in arrangements of their choice. How did we get here? And why do people to this day think that the freedom to work is any less deserving of constitutional protection than other rights? I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're taking on Nebbia versus New York. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Once upon a time, there was a court of final review that took very seriously the right to earn a living. Rather than separating out rights, like the right to enter into contracts, the right to free speech, to religious freedom, or to keep and bear arms, etc., and then determining the appropriate amount of scrutiny depending on the right at issue, courts simply presumed you were free to act as you wished and put the burden on the government in every case to justify its restrictions on liberty. In this magical era, justices who protected the right to earn a living recognized that the Constitution did not just protect those specific rights spelled out, like the rights protected under the First or Second Amendment. In fact, the Ninth Amendment explicitly says that even though the Constitution lists out certain rights, that list is not exhaustive. These justices believe that economic liberty, including the right to enter into contracts and to keep the fruits of one's labor, was encompassed by that amendment. The justices didn't make this up out of thin air. The right to earn a living has a long intellectual pedigree, and courts often reference this in their opinions. Here's Professor Hadley Arcus, a prominent legal scholar, on Justice Stephen Field's dissent in the famous slaughterhouse cases. I mean, the, the, the dissenting opinion in the slaughterhouse cases is just a marvel. In fact, it was there that he cited Louis XVI issuing an edict written by Turgot, the famous finance minister. Turgot, who had the pride of giving us the first notable response to the notion of a graduated income tax, and Turgot said, this is one of those projects in which would be wiser to execute the author and not the project. And Turgot drafted this edict that Louis XVI put out saying, we're not going to sell to people, uh, claim a monopoly to control all the ways in which they make their living. So the people have to buy from the government the freedom to engage in an ordinary ordinary living. So recognize the natural right of people to their own labor, which tells you what was in the air in the circles of the refined and the educated in Europe and America, how deeply these premises were. Judges went so far as to mention economic liberty right alongside other fundamental rights. Here's Professor Arcus again on Justice Rufus Peckham in Allgaier versus Louisiana. He said, the liberty mentioned in that amendment, the 14th Amendment, means not only the right of the citizen to be free from mere physical restraint in his person, as by incarceration, but the term is deemed to embrace the right of the citizen to be free in the enjoyment of all of his faculties, to be free to use them in all lawful ways, to pursue any livelihood or avocation. It was a good time for economic liberty. Let's go to work. Everybody 
court opinions from this time that struck down economic regulations are portrayed as pro-big business and anti-worker, as if courts weren't concerned about the workers' well-being and instead supported big, bad, cruel business owners. But if you actually read them, these opinions were quite often beautiful and empowering defenses of individual autonomy and dignity. The plaintiffs in many of these cases weren't just business owners, but often the workers themselves. In a challenge to Illinois' maximum hours law for women, several women testified that they preferred to work longer hours in order to make more money rather than have their hours capped by the government. 27-year-old Molly Fax testified that she wanted to continue her usual shift because she was anxious to earn as much money as possible. The more money I can earn, she said, the better I am able to support myself. The plaintiff's brief in that case read, The proper length of time for a man or woman to work is the time he or she is fixed upon is what his or her necessities, aims, or desires require. Whether he will pass his youth in toil with the hope of a middle and old age in dignity, honor, and repose, or surrender the prospects of rising in the world for the sake of present ease, is a problem which he himself is best able to solve. Progressive opinions upholding regulation, by contrast, were often paternalistic and downright offensive. Future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis's brief in support of maximum hours legislation in Mueller versus Oregon argued that women couldn't sustain as many hours as men and repeatedly referred to the physical inferiority of women. One expert even concluded, it is not good for women to stand at all, really. Instead, women were purportedly best left to housework because it allowed them, quote, a certain freedom of doing or leaving undone. Leaving undone? Sounds like someone who's never done a day of housework in his life. Here's an interchange between Hadley and me on this point. You know, something that I find so interesting is when you read the briefs from those cases that are on the side of economic liberty, they're so empowering to women and they're, it's the women themselves who are suing, right? And they're like, no, I want to work more hours or, you know, you're limiting my economic opportunity. I have, I have brothers and sisters at home who need to be fed. And then when you read the progressives briefs, it's like, no, no, women really shouldn't be working. You know, they're the paternalistic disempowering ones. It is interesting. With Sutherland... He's speaking of Justice Sutherland, one of the so-called four horsemen who vigorously protected economic liberty in the face of New Deal-era legislation. In that Atkins case with Willie Lyons, going to the age of Willie Lyons, running an elevator in the Congress Hotel in Washington, D.C. And he said, this is rather, this is patronizing. Tell us a, a woman, an adult woman of mature age, can't make her own judgment as to whether this job of the terms fit, fit her needs. She could, she could be an heiress. She may not need the money. Could be just getting some extra spending money. And that may not be necessary that every job pays enough to support a family, right? But, and he said it was patronizing. When he said that, people may forget that, that Sutherland, coming from Utah, had been a leader in the cause of votes for women. Remember, the, the, the support for the, the cause of votes for women came from the Republicans in the West, in the frontier, in places like Wyoming, where people had a strong respect for what women had done in, in settling, settling this area. And the resistance came from within the Democratic Party because uh, with their Southern wing, there was a, a deep reluctance to open up the whole question of the franchise because that would open up the question of uh, the disfranchisement of blacks. So uh, it's, it's, it's curious that the, that the support had to come from the Republican Party. And when women's suffrage arrived and the women first voted in the presidential election in uh, 1920, there was a, a, the women's vote favored the Republicans, favored Warren Harding at the time. 
Sometimes defenders of regulation were worse than paternalistic. They were downright sinister. They recognized that regulation acts as a powerful tool for keeping out unwanted competition. Remember, in, in the Atkins cases, Sutherland was going to the rescue of Willie Lyons, who was operating an elevator and getting $33 a month, two meals a day. It was the nicest job she could get. Her employers were perfectly willing to keep her there. And they said, well, you can't keep a woman there for less than $72.50. But those laws that cast their protections over women did not cast comparable protections over men. So men were still free to take the job at the market rate, which turned out to be, guess what? $33 a week and two meals a day. So the effect was to start up, launch a process that would uh, move to start clearing out women in place of men uh, in these jobs. Importantly, these same justices still had respect for rules that actually promoted health and safety. Here's Professor Arcus. At the same time, those conservative judges, the so-called fair judges uh, at the end of the 19th century were quite willing to uphold legislation that had as a, as a clear purpose the protection of the public safety and health. No, they, they had no trouble doing that. They didn't see, in other words, put it this way, that the people who understood a moral ground for those claims of your, your rights of property also understood then the moral limits to the claim reach of our freedoms. Compare this state of affairs, the serious respect for the right to govern one's own economic affairs, with the status quo. Here's a constitutional lawyer on what happens nowadays if you walk into court arguing that a law interferes with your constitutional right to earn a living. My name is Tim Sandifer. I'm the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute and author of uh, The Right to Earn a Living. There, there are several tests because depending on the rights in question, the courts apply different rules. For instance, if you argue that the law violates your freedom of speech, then the court you know, really cares a lot about that. And so it applies a different test called strict scrutiny. And hardly any restriction on speech will ever satisfy the Constitution because strict scrutiny is very demanding. Strict in theory, fatal in fact, as the saying goes. Rational basis is at the opposite end of that spectrum. Under the rational basis test, the government can basically do anything that it wants unless you can prove to the judge that it's totally crazy. And hardly anything ever passes that standard, even things that actually are totally crazy, uh, because the, the idea is that the judge wants to avoid interfering with democracy and uh, and standing in the way of what the legislature has chosen and those sorts of things. So the rational basis test is basically a politically designed mechanism to avoid courts having to enforce the Constitution too strictly. How did we get here? Most legal scholars would agree there was a shift. No, not the fabled switch in time that saved nine, a more gradual shift. Here's Tim and how the court created tiers of scrutiny. It was invented because um, of... Uh, two things that really happened. The first was the progressive era of the late 19th, early 20th century. And the second was kind of the cashing in on that, which was the New Deal in the 1930s. Uh, what happened in the progressive era, the progressive movement was this intellectual movement that, among other things, argued that democracy was more important than liberty as a constitutional value. If you look at the Constitution, it says in the very first sentence that liberty is a blessing. That's the word it uses, to the blessings of liberty. It doesn't say that about democracy. In fact, the word democracy is not in the Constitution at all. But the progressives believed that the ideas of individual liberty, that the classical liberal 
constitutional framers believed in had been outdated, had been proven obsolete. And so they came up with the idea of substituting democracy as the prime constitutional value. So freedom now is conceived of as a space that the government carves out for you, basically a permission that's given to you by the state. And that idea then kind of uh, forms the background for the movement 20 years later when the New Deal comes along and really cashes in on that. And you see, you know, Roosevelt appointing almost all of the Supreme Court and the justices are all steeped in this progressive ideology. And what they proceed to do then is to largely substitute democracy for liberty. And so if you're going to do that, you're going to prioritize some rights over others. You're going to say, well, freedoms like freedom of speech, those are important for democracy. So we're going to protect those. But private property rights, that's very anti-democratic. So we're going to sort of dilute, water down the the protections that are accorded to private property and so forth. So what you end up with is a distorted constitutional lens whereby some constitutional freedoms are more protected than others. And that that determination is basically a function of the justice's own political opinions. And here's Hadley. Well, everything is attributable these days to progressivism, right? And the confidence that first, we, we don't take seriously those natural rights uh, that the founders mentioned. Woodrow Wilson considered them an 18th century relic. And we know something better now. We know how to manage government. And we know that there's a kind of science of government that it could be done by professionals, social scientists, who detached from, from the meaner sides of politics could be entrusted to run our government with their own expertise. We somehow have a sense of, gee, what the right number is for a pair of pants and for uh, hot oil. It's amazing how many th- things of that sort have been done under the, the, the conceit and the fact that the fantasy that people can direct the economy from some central point. But one case in particular really signaled the demise of economic liberty, and the prescient dissent rings true to this day. A working class hero is something to be. At the height of the Depression, New York passed a law establishing a milk control board, which was empowered to set the minimum price for milk. Its reason for raising the cost of a vital product during hard financial times The price of milk had dipped below the cost of production, and the state was concerned that producers might start cutting corners when it came to safety precautions in order to save costs. It was also concerned about the viability of the milk market in general. So the board prohibited any store from selling milk at less than nine cents a quart. Leo Nebbia, the proprietor of a grocery store in Rochester, sold two quarts of milk and a five-cent loaf of bread for 18 cents. He was convicted for violating the minimum price law. His defense? The minimum price law violated his constitutional right to conduct a business free of arbitrary government interference. In previous cases, the court had upheld minimum price laws, but only where the business was, quote, affected with the public interest. Here's Tim. In an 1876 case called Munn versus Illinois, the Supreme Court said uh, that the government could tell people what kinds of contracts they could write as long as the business that they're engaged in is affected with a public interest. So if, if I write a, a contract with you, I'm going to you know, sell you a book for $5, it ain't nobody else's business. So you and I can decide for ourselves the price and, and you know, wh- when I'll deliver the book and all those sorts of things. And, and nobody has any business you know, interfering with that. On the other hand, in, in 
situations where you have something like in in the Munn case, a grain elevator where a bunch of grain shipments from Chicago have to store their grain there before they can be loaded onto ships for for sale to markets. You're dealing with tons and tons of people, a major industry. Can the government regulate the prices charged there? In the 1876 case, in the Munn case, the Supreme Court said yes, because that business is affected with a public interest. But in Nebbia... The Supreme Court threw out that old test and said, okay, here's a new test instead. As long as the government thinks that what it's doing is good for the public, that's good enough with us. And that was the rational basis test. The Nebbia decision not only threw out the public interest distinction, it drastically reduced the standard afforded to economic regulations. Justice Roberts reasoned that equally fundamental with private economic rights is the right of the public to regulate in the common interest. He continued, quote, subject only to constitutional restraint, the private right must yield to the public need. Justice James McReynolds was not pleased. As he said in his dissent for four justices, known as the Four Horsemen, Leo Nebbia had been, quote, convicted of a crime for selling his own property, wholesome milk, in the ordinary course of business at a price satisfactory to himself and the customer. In other words, it was wholly innocent conduct, and yet the legislature has essentially said, quote, to him with less than nine cents, you cannot procure a quart of milk from the grocer, although he is anxious to accept what you can pay, and the demands of your household are urgent. A superabundance, but no child can purchase from a willing storekeeper below the figure appointed by three men at headquarters. He further observed that the reason for this regulation was an emergency, to use the term loosely, of the milk producer's own making. As Justice McReynolds explained, low prices, quote, inevitably arise when one set of men continue to produce more than all others can buy. The distressing result to the producer followed his own ill-advised but voluntary efforts. Similar situations occur in almost every business. If here we have an emergency sufficient to empower the legislature to fix sales prices, then, whenever there's too much or too little of an essential thing, whether of milk or grain or pork or coal or shoes or clothes, constitutional provisions may be declared inoperative, and anarchy and despotism are at the door. McReynolds recognized the significance of the court shift. Quote, regulation to prevent recognized evils in business has long been upheld as permissible, but fixation of the price at which A, engaged in an ordinary business, may sell in order to enable B, a producer, to improve his condition, is not regulation, but management, control, dictation. It amounts to the deprivation of the fundamental right which one has to conduct his own affairs honestly and along customary lines. The majority, he said, declared that rights guaranteed by the Constitution exist only so long as supposed public interest does not require their extinction. To adopt such a view, of course, would put an end to liberty under the Constitution. Even accepting the new lower rational basis test, Justice McReynolds said the new price law failed it. Quote, if a statute to prevent fires should require householders to pour oil on their roofs as a measure of curbing the spread of fire when discovered in the neighborhood, we could hardly uphold it. There was no indication that higher charges at stores to impoverished customers would achieve its ends. McReynolds closed out his opinion with the strong rebuke of the majority, which had insinuated that to strike down the law would leave milk producers unprotected. He said, The somewhat misty suggestion that striking down the minimum price laws would leave milk producers unprotected from oppression, I assume, was not intended as a material contribution to the discussion upon the merits. Grave concern for embarrassed farmers is everywhere, but this should neither obscure the rights of others nor obstruct judicial appraisement of the law. The ultimate welfare of the producer, like that of every other class, requires dominance of the Constitution, 
and zealously to uphold this in all its parts is the highest duty entrusted to the courts. Here's Tim. What Nebbia does is it says that the that states can do basically what they want when it comes to regulating prices, restricting the use of property, things like that. And you're right, Justice McReynolds is is fit to be tied about this and other cases at the time because this is a, a drastic backing away from economic liberty as he understands it. In fact, there's a line in the dissenting opinion where he likens laws like this to pouring gasoline on a roof that's on fire to put out the flames. In the height of the Great Depression, when people are in desperate need of food, the the state of New York comes up with a brilliant idea to make food more expensive, milk more expensive for mothers to buy for their babies, literally. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, that's just fine. And McReynolds says, are you crazy? Even if you, you believe this rational basis stuff, this is not rational. And he's right about that. But that's the law that you're stuck with after that. To be clear, James McReynolds was not a nice guy. In fact, he was a nasty, racist man. Here's Tim. He was such a horrible person that people are very shy and reluctant to, to cite him. He was a, a thoroughgoing racist anti-Semite. And it's very, uh, very unfortunate that the spokesman for economic freedom at that time was such a, a horrendous human being. He refused to speak to Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish justice, for three years after Brandeis's confirmation, and would even leave the room when Brandeis spoke. So popular was he among his colleagues, when James McReynolds died, not a single one attended his funeral. Here's Professor Argus. God, he was a grumpy, nasty man. <laughs> he, he was, but it just shows you that even some grumpy, nasty men can produce uh, a good thing. You don't gotta go to Today, we call the test articulated in Nebbia the rational basis test, and we contrast it with other tests that are applied to different kinds of rights. Where does this distinction between different constitutional liberties come from? Not the text of the Constitution. Here's Hadley. Where are those things in the Constitution? I'm dubious of the notion that, ah, for this, you need an utterly compelling justification but apparently for something else, you, you need a, a lame justification will do. So my scheme is, no, a justification is a justification that you should be, no matter what the liberty is, government should be forced to offer some plausible explanation why there's something a, wrong or unwholesome about the activity, why there would be some kind of uh, injury to the public in allowing this, this, this activity to continue. And here's Tim. Oh, there, it, it definitely is not in the Constitution anywhere. Instead, Tim says, the tiers of scrutiny make up a totally irrational, arbitrary system that was invented by judges with no constitutional pedigree in order to rationalize Franklin Roosevelt's schemes and that don't make any sense a century later. Roger Pawan at the Cato Institute has said that these tiers of scrutiny are multiplying like the epicycles of Ptolemaic astronomers trying to explain away the, the motions of the planets before Galileo came along and said they were all full of crap. Rational basis then was not like rational basis now. It started out as a presumption in favor of the constitutionality of the challenge law, but that presumption could be overcome. Here's Tim. There was another case decided that same year. That is the same year as Nebbia. 
called Borden Farms versus Baldwin, where the Supreme Court said, hey, you know, that rational basis test is just a factual presumption. All we said there was that we're going to assume that laws are, are constitutional until you show that they're not. But it's a rebuttable presumption. It, in fact, the, the language you used was, quote, um, it is a presumption of fact. As such, it is a rebuttable presumption. It is not a conclusion or a rule of law which makes legislative action invulnerable to constitutional assault. Nor is such immunity to be achieved by treating any fanciful conjecture as enough to repel attack. So in other words, they're saying, we're just assuming that the law is rational, but you still can prove to us that it's not and prove to us that it's unconstitutional. But then the test evolved. Well, then you flash forward to the 1950s. And by that time, the court is made up uh, almost entirely of Roosevelt and Truman appointees. And they're saying, eh, we don't even care. If you come to us with facts, we're not going to say that the law is unconstitutional, even if you prove to us that it is. And they start issuing these terrible decisions um, like Williamson, uh, uh, Lee Optical, and, and these sorts of cases. And there are some absurd formulations of the rational basis test out there, including the Supreme Court's opinion in FCC versus Beach Communications. There. Of all people, Justice Clarence Thomas writes this opinion where he says, facts are constitutionally irrelevant, end quote in a rational basis case. So it doesn't matter if, if if you go to court and you say, well, Your Honor, this law was passed in order to alleviate poverty, but it does not actually alleviate poverty. And in fact, it cannot alleviate poverty. Therefore, it's unconstitutional because it's not reasonable. It's a, that's a perfectly rational argument. The court's going to say, nope, we don't care what actually motivated the legislature. We can create our own hi- purely hypothetical theory of what might have motivated the legislature, and that's good enough to uphold the law. That's what FCC versus Beach Communication says. Now, fortunately, they have moderated their tone in the years since, but you still see a lot of people citing that opinion as saying, as long as the government thought it was a good idea, the facts don't matter. There are pretty dramatic stories of what happens to entrepreneurs under the rational basis test. In Evergreen International Airlines versus United States, two rural airlines challenged a law that required airlines that delivered mail to rural areas to also carry passengers, but it exempted big carriers that had been in the business for some time. The plaintiffs argued the law discriminated against smaller businesses like themselves, who didn't qualify for the exemption, and deprived them of their right to enter the industry. At oral argument, the attorney for the government argued for an extremely deferential version of the rational basis test. He said that even if there was evidence that the government was motivated solely by corruption, that would be irrelevant to whether the law was constitutional. Here's a clip. What if they show that every person in Congress who actively moved this legislation forward was doing so because they had been paid off to do so? Is that enough to to, to, to delegitimate the statute? I think not, Your Honor. That would be obviously deplorable if that was the way Congress uh, arrived at certain legislation. But the point of rational basis review is those sorts of problems are meant to be remedied by political solutions, not by judicial solutions. According to the government's attorney, bribery wouldn't matter so long as there was some conceivable reason that legislators could have used to pass the law. But it gets worse. When pressed about what constitutes conceivable, he said, Can I get at your definition of conceivable? Um, To take an outer boundary sort of example, sure, uh, not related to this case, uh, is it conceivable that space aliens are visiting this planet in invisible and undetectable craft. Is it conceivable? That's my question. 
Yes, it's conceivable. And that would be a basis for sustaining congressional legislation if Congress stood if, – if, if the person sponsoring the bill said – Space aliens are visiting us in invisible and undetectable craft, and that's the basis for my legislation. We can't touch it. Uh, if Congress made a finding of that sort. That's my question. Your Honor, I think if Congress made a finding of that sort, I think, Your Honor, it would not be appropriate for this court to second-guess that. Under this formulation, what's not conceivable? And since plaintiffs can't introduce facts to rebut the government's assertions, statutes are essentially insulated from challenge. When you ask economic liberty litigators for an egregious example of the rational basis test, they often point to the same case, Meadows versus Odom. Here's Tim. Louisiana is the only state in the union that requires government permission for you to arrange flowers. You have to get a government license to practice floristry in Louisiana. And of course, it's very expensive and time consuming to get a license. License The license exam is only administered uh, twice a year in in, Louisiana. the, in particular cities. So you have to travel and stay overnight and take the test. And this test is very subjective. It grades you on things like the beauty of your floral designs and this kind of nonsense. It's, it's obviously a law designed to prevent competition in the floral industry by people who don't want to compete fairly. That is powerful interests in the floral industry. And so uh, this lawsuit, the IJ filed this lawsuit on behalf of a woman named Sandy Meadows who worked in the flory, florist department of a grocery store, if I remember right, uh, but did not have a license. And they said, this is not rational. There's no way that being a florist could hurt anybody. So there's no reason for the government to be involved here in requiring people to get a license and, and spend all this money and time to get a license to practice this business. And the um, the government came in and said, well, the reason you need a license is because florists hold their flower arrangements together with wires, and it's possible you might scratch your finger on one of the wires. Therefore, it's a public health threat because, you know, you're dealing with soil and there's there's things in the soil and, and that would be bad. So we need to get you need to have a go- government permission before you can arrange flowers for money. And so the court said, yeah, that's good enough for us. So now it's a it's a actually a very tragic case because Sandy Meadows being thrown out of a job um, was unable to find work and died in very sad circumstances. It's a horrendous and ridiculous and farcical and tragic story about how the courts have used the rational basis test to slam the door on what is really the, I would say, among the most fundamental, if not the most important constitutional rights Americans enjoy. And remember Clark Neely from our episode about qualified immunity in Section 1983? Well, he litigated the Meadows case, and here's what he had to say. It's very difficult to think of a law that is more bonkers than requiring somebody to get a government-issued license in order to sell floral arrangements. And, um, you know, I think that kind of illustrates, at least to me, what an absolute farce and a fraud and a charade the rational basis test is. It's not a test. It is nothing more than a judicial effort to have, you know, their cake and eat it too. To be able to say on the one hand, oh, no, of course you have, you know, economic liberty. You have a constitutional right to earn a living in the occupation of your choice, free from unreasonable government interference, but we're not ever going to protect it in any meaningful way. And, um, you know, I, I obviously I can't heap enough scorn on the rational basis test. I mentioned to Tim a recent case where a federal court in Kentucky ruled that even if the plaintiffs could show the challenge law did not, in fact, further its goals in the present day, the law would still be constitutional so long as the legislature could have rationally thought it would further its goals at the time it was enacted. That is, 
It doesn't matter if you can show that a law is irrational, contradicted by evidence, and demonstrably harmful today, so long as a legislature even 100 years ago might have thought the law was rational then. He responded, You know, it's interesting. So there's a case from the Fifth Circuit where the court says even if a law does not have a rational basis when it's enacted, it can acquire one over time. And then it's constitutional. So an unconstitutional law can stick around on the books for long enough that we can say, well, yeah, but nowadays, you know, it, it works in a constitutional. So if you put that with what you just said, now no law is ever unconstitutional. Yeah, it's a one-way ratchet. Yet one more example where Nebbia reared its ugly head is Hedinga versus United States, a 2012 case that, like Nebbia, involved a seller of milk. What's with all the milk cases? Here's Tim, who litigated that case. Hedinga is a case about uh, a law w- regulating what you could charge for milk. Mr. Hedinga found a way around this. He found a loophole in this law, and so he could charge less for his milk. And so he did that. And when the dairies found out about it, the the dairy cartels, they were horrified and and infuriated. And so they went to Congress and they got a law passed to eliminate Mr. Hedinga's business. So he sued and he said, this is unconstitutional. I have a right to earn a living. It's unreasonable to say that my operations are harming somebody. This law is clearly focused on me. It violates my right to equal protection and so forth and so on. And the government showed up and said, we think this law is rational. You, You should dismiss this case. Now, that's important. It was not, there was no trial. This was not a, something that happened after the court had heard evidence. This was at the outset. The court said, we're going to dismiss the case just because the government says that it's rational. Truly magic words. The government lawyer shows up and says, abracadabra, and the court throws the case out. So on appeal in, in the D.C. Circuit, the question was, you know, is this constitutional? The court's answer, yes. Why? rational basis. Viewing herself as bound by Supreme Court precedent, Judge Janice Rogers Brown voted with the majority, but she wrote a separate concurring opinion to point out the constitutional infirmities of the rational basis test. She said, quote, America's cowboy capitalism was long ago disarmed by a democratic process increasingly dominated by powerful groups with economic interests antithetical to competitors and consumers. And the courts, from which the victims of burdensome regulation sought protection, have been negotiating the terms of surrender since the 1930s. Judge Brown gave a nod to McReynolds' dissent in Nebbia, noting, quote, As the dissent predicted in Nebbia, the judiciary's refusal to consider the wisdom of legislative acts, at least to inquire whether its purpose and the means proposed are within legislative power, would lead to only one result. Rights guaranteed by the Constitution would exist only so long as supposed public interest does not require their extinction. She continued, To be sure, the economic climate in which the New York legislature enacted the law at issue in Nebbia was truly dire. But 78 years later, the same tired trope about disorderly market conduct is still around. Once again, the government has thwarted the free market and ultimately hurt consumers to protect the economic interest of a powerful faction. Neither the legislators nor the lobbyists broke any positive laws to accomplish this result. It just seems like a crime. She closed out by saying that, contrary to the assertion that the remedy is to go pound on the legislature's door, the hope of correction at the ballot box is purely illusory. In an earlier century, H.L. Mencken offered a blunt assessment of that option. Quote, 
government is a broker in pillage, and every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. And as the Hedingas can attest, it's no good hoping the process will heal itself. The question is, why does this distinction between economic rights and other rights persist to this day, not just in courts, but in popular mindsets? We asked a few experts why people seem to think that work is less important than other constitutional rights. My name is Adam Thier. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And most recently, my latest books are on permissionless innovation and evasive entrepreneurs. It seems to me that a lot of the opposition to uh, a freedom to innovate, to be entrepreneurial and to earn a living is rooted in some way in the idea that money sullies everything. Somehow it's dirty. And in fact, in my latest book on evasive entrepreneurialism, I point out an interesting dichotomy in the law and so much modern jurisprudence, which is there are so many things that you can do for free that you can't do if you charge even one penny. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Even where it's clearly commercial versus non-commercial, we shouldn't have radically different rights under a constitution based upon the idea that we're charging a single penny for something versus zero. That just doesn't make sense. You believe in the right to earn a living and the right to innovate, or you don't. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. Adam also pointed out that shouldn't the focus not be on the motivation, but the results? And unfortunately, I think too much law and policy is still based on intentions. It's like it's well, we put it on you know on the books with the very best of intentions, and sure, it didn't do what it was supposed to do, and things went horribly wrong, and were outrageously costly, and the taxpayers had to bail us out. But you know what? Our heart was in the right place. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, it's not enough that your heart's in the right place. Uh, you have to actually make sure that your actual real world results add up to progress and prosperity for me to really care and think it matters. Professor Arcus answered that the reason the distinction persists is because many have an overwhelming and unsupported faith in the ability of government to solve problems. There's a belief that... People have talked themselves into the school that, yeah, government can do it. Government can engage in central planning. Well, you know, as, as Hayek pointed out, you know, there's no way that the government could access to all the information that's out there being, I was at a dinner years ago with the judge who was dismantling um, AT&T. And remember, I leaned in as a smart alky way, and I said, Judge, tell me, do you think the same principles that establish all men are created and the categorical imperative also establish somewhere further along the chain of reasoning the right number of divisions in AT&T? How did you know it was seven? And actually, what he said to me at the time, Anastasia, was that with the German accent, well, you cannot make an omelet without breaking eggs. I said, oh, I see, it's Lenin. Of course, it's, why, did, why wasn't that clear to me from the beginning? Of course, of course, it's, it's Lenin. With the rising confidence in government came a decreasing confidence in fellow men and the demise of individualism. There was a sort of loss of awe in what individuals, when left free, are able to accomplish. Here's Tim. Isabel Patterson, the the philosopher and um, and pa- newspaper columnist in the in the 1930s, 
referred to her generation as the airplane generation, meaning the generation that had witnessed the Wright brothers. And as she put it, when the Wright brothers flew, she, she said people kind of reacted with a sense of, well, of course human beings can fly. Human beings can do anything. And that spirit was really lost uh, in the, as the 20th century progressed. Yeah. When you said rugged individualism, it reminded me of in Judge Brown's concurrence in Heading. She talks about the demise of cowboy capitalism. You could do a whole podcast on the, on the, on the phrase cowboy capitalism. The, the figure of the cowboy as, a, as an American cultural icon really began with the airplane generation. Uh, they were the ones who who looked back nostalgically on the old west and and created the western and the the cowboy becomes this image of american individualism to such a degree that in the 1980s when solidarity in poland was protesting soviet oppression um they were accused of being cowboys that was the term that the soviets used about them and what they meant by that was that they were they were they were bucking the system. They weren't going along and doing what the what they were told like good Soviet citizens should. And so the solidarity in, in response to that created a poster of Gary Cooper from the film High Noon carrying a ballot in his hand instead of a pistol. The beautiful image that captures this idea of American individualism being something really special and unique and unfortunately under assault almost from the day it was created. But the right to earn a living is vital to a free and flourishing society. As Adam points out, well, entrepreneurs make the world go round. It's people that are willing to go out there and take a risk and do something new and different um, that really help move the needle on progress in a major way. They unlock new ideas, new opportunities, and then give the world all new products, services, and more. One of the things I like to talk about in my own work is how so many of our critics and the critics of economic liberty are self-declared or self-labeled humanists. They say, we are humanists and we are here to oppose technological innovation or, or, or challenge it or challenge economic liberty on various grounds. And I'm always astonished by that. I mean, how could they call themselves humanists? The real humanists are the people who go out and actually put their time and effort and energy into new products, new ventures, new ideas to try to change the world for the better. Benjamin Franklin noted that humans are tool-making animals by their nature because they want to improve their lot in life, a lot of the lives around them. And it's only by allowing that activity to happen through economic liberty, through entrepreneurial freedom and permissionless innovation that we actually have a chance to change it. And according to Tim... Economic liberty is part and parcel to the American dream. When you talk about the American dream, what does that phrase mean? What it means to most people is the right to put your own knowledge and skills to work, to provide for yourself and your family. And that should be among the most cherished of individual freedoms. Here's Professor Arcus. Intellectuals get quite uh, excited over people interfering with uh, with publishing and speaking, but ordinary people manifest their freedom by doing ordinary things of, uh, involved in making a living for their families. It could, it could be shining shoes. It could be braiding hair, as you've seen in Washington, um, uh, being, in, being in, the, in the pants business. 
Um, for them, th these liberties matters uh, just as much as the freedom to speak. That's one of the most poignant things I've ever heard a person say. Ordinary people express their liberty in ordinary ways, like changing a lock for money or selling milk. It's not just the ability to change the world by, say, inventing Google that makes the right to earn a living important. It's also the ability to support one's family by starting everyday businesses. Economic liberty is important because it protects people like Artie Vogt, owner of a moving company in Virginia. Artie started out at the company as a driver, and over the years, he and his wife Stephanie saved up to buy the business. But they didn't know that when they bought the company, the license to operate didn't automatically transfer with it. They applied, but were denied, because state experts said another business wasn't needed. And shortly after, Stephanie passed away from cancer. I represented Artie in a lawsuit, which resulted in the legislature repealing the requirement that entrepreneurs prove they're needed. Artie fondly called the law Stephanie's law. Here he is just after the repeal bill passed. Yeah, I cried. <laughs> Tears of joy, though. I was extremely happy. I hope Stephanie knows what happened. She'd be kind of proud of me. <laughs> I tried to get in touch with Artie a couple of years ago, and I didn't hear back. But while doing some research a little later, I saw that he had passed away. I read his obituary, which was just a few paragraphs long, and right in the middle of it, a reference to the lawsuit. In this man's life, one of the most important things he had done, worthy of his obituary, was getting that law struck down and reclaiming his right to operate his business. That's why economic liberty is important. On the job from nine to five, working nine to five. What's the future for economic liberty cases? Will the court ever rethink its abandonment of economic liberty, a distinction not found in the Constitution, not supported by constitutional history, and which has devastating consequences? Here's Tim. I think the prospects for uh, reviving constitutional protection for economic liberty are good. I think that um, we in this industry, and by that I mean conservative, libertarian, public interest litigation, have laid bare the intellectual vacuity of the rational basis test so much so that it's pretty obvious to everybody concerned that the entire construct is politically designed um, and and cannot be justified intellectually or constitutionally. I think that I'm optimistic in that sense. The only reason for denying it is because those rights stand in the way of some utopian vision of collectivism that has no foundation in morality or the Constitution. And that's why tiers of scrutiny and so forth persist to this day. But they'll change. They will. Will the day come when courts once again vigorously protect all aspects of our liberty, including the right to earn a living? We can't say for sure. But if we're going to change things, we're going to have to put in the work. Thanks for listening to DIS. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. So we can fiddle around with it to make it sound chronologically correct but, but just don't arrange in such a way that i come out in favor of wage price controls <laughs> we're not we're not that good at editing so it's like the rural juror from 30 rock the rural juror <laughs> we have too much fun together okay 
Um, and I, I retail this story in my book, The Right to Earn a Living. Um, or I'm sorry, my other book, The Permission Society. I get them mixed up because I write so many. Humble brag. I, I often use that advice of uh, Victor Borgay, the great pianist and comedian, who said, he said, my two sons, my two sons, Peter and, uh, um, he said, it doesn't matter. They never came when I called them anyway. <laughs> Well, I like to say well, it's attributed to Einstein, right? Never remember anything that you can easily look up in a book. So there you go. That's my excuse. But remember, what do you forget? What book are you looking up in? <laughs> right. And where did I put that book? <laughs> Google it. 27-year-old Molly Fox. <laughs> facts? Facts. I'm going with facts. 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 I don't think it matters. Nobody knows Molly. <laughs> but I, I know. But I know. Okay. Pour one out for Molly. There's an old saying, old theories never die, just old theorists. Eventually, the court is going to be replaced by people who have grown up with the debates that we've been having over the past 20 years or so. And um, and I'm, I think the prospects are bright, assuming we survive that long. Me too, because I'm polyanastasia. Um, and I'm unitary, Tim. Okay, last... <laughs> well, listen, thank you for introducing me anew to my book. <laughs> it introduced me to, to start reading. I thought, this is not bad. This is so good. <laughs> this is genius. Work. Work, 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 That was like a mashup. You're doing one work song and I'm doing another. Work, work. Angelica. Eliza. Elizabeth. And Peggy. <laughs> it should be Anastasia and Elizabeth and Grant. And Grant. <laughs> the podcast sister. Angelica. Oh, Anastasia, Elizabeth, Grant. Work. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs>